Welcome to another episode of Money for Nothing. I'm Saxon Baird with Sandbacker. As always, we are the podcast about music and capitalism. Please rate and review us. Also, we have a newsletter now, which you can sign up for at moneyfornothing.substack.com. We've joined the Substack train, people. Uh, that's moneyfornothing.substack.com, and four is the number four. And if you sign up for the newsletter, you will get a exclusive piece of Money for Nothing bonus content. Saxon, tell the good people what they will get to listen to. Yeah, well, so we're going to be expanding our content a lot in 2021. And if you sign up now, you will get to hear an exclusive interview I did with Stephen Thomas Erlewine who is a music writer, and if you go on allmusic.com and read a review, he probably wrote it. <laughs> Which makes him the single most important intellectual influence on me and Saxon, not just in terms of music, but like full stop, the only man who matters for how we think about things. Yes, and that that is very true, and I have to admit he definitely probably has had one of the biggest influences uh, on my musical tastes than anyone else the, the number of like <laughs> the number of like legit like fanboy text i got from saxon in pre- preparation for this email <laughs> god don't blow me up being messy on the pod <laughs> but we have another great interview for you today on this episode we'll be talking to liz pelly which we're very excited to talk to liz is a great music writer and has kind of spearheaded the takedown and criticisms of Spotify, like all things Spotify, uh, and a number of articles that she's written, uh, majority of them at The Baffler. Uh, but she's, yeah, she's, she's been published all over the place. And yeah, we really wanted to get her, her on because of a recent radio show that she did for Montez Press Radio, which is a kind of a cool, independent, uh, I believe only online radio program, but they do a lot of cool stuff located in New York City. And the special program that she did, which is currently in their archives, and you can go ahead and listen to, is about alternative platforms. So yeah, like uh, Sam, why don't you, why don't you start with uh, explaining like why we were kind of interested in, in not only talking to Liz about this, but just like about the idea of alternative platforms. I found like Liz's work really challenging um, to a lot of the way that we've been talking about the music industry on a couple different levels. For one, we uh, we tend to kind of uh, think about kind of descriptive criticism almost, right? Which is, I think, really important, especially when you're dealing with systems like uh, Spotify or copyright that I feel like... Um, where like uh, the, the the lack of clarity is actually a product of the power relations that create them and want to continue them, right? So I think that's really useful, but it's also, it can mean that it, it, can, it, it can sometimes feel a, a little limited, right? Like the question of like, well, what do you do next? Like this, this has problems, but like, how do we think about what comes next? And so, how does that look in practice? How does that look in the real world? Yeah, and like, how do we? And what's the role of like just like imagining futures that are different than the one we're in, the present we're in right now? And so that's one thing. And I thought Liz's work was like really exciting to me uh, because I think that taking those ideas seriously, especially from like a critical perspective, that's not just like there's a new music startup and it's going to change things, but instead like this is. Uh, platforms where the critique of how the music industry currently functions is like embedded in what they're doing was really cool and then and then a second as i think is an issue of scale right 
and that's really interesting about a lot of these platforms is that they are focused often on like local or limited segments of the music economy and particularly i think the local focus is one i find really satisfying because we, we've discussed and in some ways criticized what could be called like b- boutique versions of the the music industry like uh you know like record store day is fantastic but it's not going to solve the problem but in some ways like local a local focus where it's more interested in community and more interested in not trying to change the whole world but like change salt lake city is a very just a totally different perspective um and that's really exciting to me i think it's really interesting and i think there's sometimes a tendency to look towards what the next big thing is and maybe the next big thing is a multitude of small things and is there a way to like look forward, but also learn from our past and the ways that we used to listen to music, maybe pre Spotify, and then kind of like look forward in like how do we take the technologies or the direction in which like the world is moving towards and solidifying, but alter it in a way that is like more fair and maybe more localized or more community based. You know, how do we just take, how do, we, how, how, how do we like rethink these things and not just get caught up in this, what's going to replace Spotify or how do we make Spotify better conversation and try to think beyond outside of that box? Yeah. And, and maybe also to say just like something like extremely, extremely, almost stupidly obvious, which is that like whatever comes next, if it's anything, is going to start off small now and for a small chunk of things and sometimes even like be a failure like i think sometimes about do you remember groove shark yes right like groove shark was this weird little pirate thing where like people would put up mp3s and then you could make libraries or playlists of other people's mp3s and like i thought groove shark was a niche electronic a, a, a niche genre of electronic music from miami beach is that a j- <laughs> just kidding? I caught you off guard. You didn't know if I was being serious or not. So anyway, like Groove Shark, Groove Shark. I'm keeping that in there. I think that's Groove good. Shark was like, <laughs> fuck. <laughs> I like it. Okay. Um. No, no, no. But like Groove Shark was streaming before streaming and groove shark didn't work but like i feel like there's a direct line between groove shark and spotify which suggests to me that like new things can often start off as like small failures but if you want to start figuring out you want to start figuring out the future you got to look to like the weird little things on the edges yeah and you also and you also have to like learn from their mistakes or lack of success or their success but maybe it's a small success or whatever, you know, like you just like, they're, they're like, and I think putting a spotlight on that is very important. And Liz Pelly definitely does that. And she's kind of one of the, I'd say leading music journalists. That's like looking for these kind of alternatives. And I think it's, it, it, it's good. It's a good tandem with what we talk about to kind of go full circle in what you said earlier in that if you pair it with our criticisms, you know, you're getting a sort of full spectrum of how to possibly think about different ways to move forward 
or or alter the path of the things that we ultimately criticize and think about on this yeah i mean look just before we before we dive in i do want to talk just for a second about like i think a real tent an interesting tension that comes out of this conversation right which is like the tension between like locally focused uh thinking about music and like global music as a commodity and it's not something i by any stretch of the imagination have like a finished thought about because it's one of those things where i think both are true in that at one level i think that locally focused or smaller or niche musical products can be extraordinarily important certainly like my entire life is a testament to the potential values of niche forms of musical activity but like at the same time, I really do think that there's value in thinking about music as a global sense, music as a commodity that has certain historically determined and historically contingent characteristics, and that those characteristics do link its functioning between musical systems, especially given how integrated the vast majority of, of musical systems in the United States and to a greater or lesser extent like on Earth are at this point of time and i do think just like that there can be a tension between thinking about music locally and thinking about music globally but i don't think that that's a tension that necessarily can be resolved in like an accurate take but it's more like a tension that can be a productive part of thought maybe that like both are always going to be true and that the the way that music is going to function at any particular time is like an instantiation of like where the forces at play in that tension are. Yeah, and I feel that is a good way to actually frame this conversation and something to think about as you listen to the interview that you're about to hear with Liz Pelly. Here comes the music. Enjoy. I think about alternatives to how the music industry operates now or alternatives to streaming services or alternative platforms. Um, On one hand, what we're really talking about is like alternative ways of thinking about music in general um, in society and music's value, um, music's cultural value, um, how we should consider music as like an important part of our culture and not just a commodity. but also, you know, there's a tendency within the music industry and within music communities to look at the platforms that we use to listen to music now and their issues and sort of people seem to always be on the search for what is the next app that is going to like come along and like solve all of our problems. Um, but one of the issues with for example a platform like spotify or a platform like apple music is that they sort of seek to be these one size fits all platforms that will work for all artists but music is so vast like there are so many different types of artists and types of practices within um music and um different ways that people think about music and value it artists with different goals and for different artists that have different goals different types of music communities that come to music from different perspectives, um, you know, those 
communities and artists have different issues, different needs, different things that they want out of um, a, you know, website or app or platform that they um, use for connecting around music. Um, So I think, you know, there's always going to be a need for many more digital tools than just one. Um, So I guess ultimately it's like, yeah, thinking about what would be interesting tools to use to connect around music um, in ways that are more in line with um, the values of the music communities that we're a part of. Um, And I don't think that could be answered with like just one solution or one idea. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. I mean, that's just really fascinating to me because it kind of, it makes me think about how so many of the music technology and music platforms that have existed kind of buy into the the kind of scalability logic of tech and like more specifically of like tech financing, you know, like the idea that anything needs to be able to all of a sudden have a hundred million users. And like, that's where the financial promise comes from. And kind of like, they're all like music tech with the emphasis on tech. And you're kind of saying like, but you could have things that are like music tech that like fit the different kinds of communities the way that not every record release in 1980 was aimed at a mass market. There was a lot of different infrastructures and different forms of distribution that fit the needs of different kinds of communities. Yeah, totally. And, you know, there's lots of different music communities, lots of different needs. And I guess um, that, yeah, is, is part of the thinking behind there should be lots of different conversations that are going on and ways that we conceptualize of like how technology might play into how we connect around music. Yeah. And and that also reminds me of of, of, uh, a line in one of the articles that you wrote about um, quote unquote protest platforms that we can link to in the show notes um, about how in some ways like computational knowledge and like the ability to set up platforms was very Silent isn't maybe the right word, but like it wasn't particularly widespread. And as we look forward, it's starting to change now, but especially as we look forward, that it feels like this is a moment where real tools are going to, there's going to be more real tools in the hands of more artists and communities. And so like now is a particularly interesting time to start thinking about like what those different kinds of configurations or platforms could be. Um, Because maybe 10 years ago, it would be hard to imagine them actually existing. But like now maybe there's more possibilities in in a really exciting way. Yeah, I think you might be alluding to a quote from Maggie Vale, who was involved in this um, organization called Cash Music that distributed um, open source code to artists to create their own tools for distributing their music to their fans. Um, If I remember correctly, the article is from a few years ago, so I'm not totally sure, but I think you're quoting something Maggie Vale said in one of those articles. And I think that that's totally true. And um, yeah, I think cash music, I have said this like several times, but I think it was sort of ahead of its time. And I think that there is currently a, a need for either something like it or just sort of like more thinking in line with um, the spirit of that project, which is just like, um, sort of 
the idea of like democratizing access to information for how you make the things that you use to distribute your music. And that's something that, you know, is relevant outside of tech platforms too. Like, uh, you know, I think part of making music something that is more accessible is democratizing access to the information that people need to either be part of music communities or to release their own music. So so if that's in some ways like kind of like the alternative part of it, I'm wondering if also we could talk just for a second before we kind of dive into some of these immediate examples about um, the idea of platforms, because I feel, I feel like that's a, that's a, um, a really interesting way to think about how a lot of online music and a lot of music communities are structured now. Um, and they kind of have a very particular kind of existence. Um, I think that maybe we don't always talk about platforms as spaces enough. Like we often talk on the show, we talk about them kind of like as companies and often in part of broader capitalism, but uh, like platforms are a very specific way of organizing interactions. That's really interesting mm -hmm. to me. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And I almost wonder if like, you know, part of the conversation about alternatives also should be, and this is just an idea that perhaps someone else has better insight on, but if part of the conversation needs to be like not thinking about alternative platforms and just thinking about like more broadly how we use the internet to create um, tools that are more useful to artists and collectives and co-ops or whoever is um, seeking a digital tool for their community. Yeah, I think that's a great point and something that I think gets lost in the conversation that, you know, it, the idea of the platform just becomes this ubiquitous answer. But yeah, not to get like too heady or off topic here, <laughs> you know, but, but yeah. it, it is interesting that, you know, maybe like having that sort of self-reflection and, you know, even trying to remember wait, how did we get music again before like streaming services or before like we started talking about platform platforms and that became like part of the language? Like how, how did we do that again? <laughs> but like, let's dive into some of those platforms. In your recent program for Montez, uh, which we both enjoyed, uh, you talked to the people behind Tracks, which is a streaming service through the library system in Chapel Hill, North Carolina that features local musicians. And these kind of services have been kind of popping up a bit all over the country and also in Canada. And I, I know there's a great one in like Salt Lake, I think called Hum. Um, can you maybe just tell us a little bit more about these like library based music streaming services and like particularly your thoughts on them in relation to alternative streaming platforms? Yeah, I was really excited when I found out in um, December through an article that was published by, I think it was the, like Alt Weekly in Chapel Hill, but somehow I it came to me through Twitter um, that the Chapel Hill Public Library and Chapel Hill Arts and Culture had launched a non-commercial local music focused streaming service through the library that was accessible to anyone and that library card holders could download the mp3s and that the artists were compensated for the licensing of their music and yeah this was really exciting to me because i think the idea of 
the idea of public funding for the arts is not something that is discussed enough in um, the United States, but also public funding for music on a local level, I think is something really important that needs to be like discussed more. And I think when we think about music streaming and making it more fair or making it work for artists more like the conversation tends to like really focus on either how do you create how do you force the um corporate streaming services to be more fair which frankly probably is never going to happen um or like how do we imagine alternatives but so many times like those alternatives are just some other app that is still based on like the idea of um, you know, the same economic logic of other music industry norms. So I like the idea um, of sort of suggesting that creating culture that values music um, could involve some form of civic engagement and not just be about how do we hold private companies accountable. Um, so I like the, I like the idea of like thinking about public libraries as places for engaging in some of that work. And, you know, I also feel like if you think about some of the things about music streaming that are helpful for people, like, you know, like you do want people to have access to music. And if that could be, I feel like the idea of people having access to music libraries through their public libraries is just about I don't know, from my perspective, one of the best paths that we could follow in terms of how to take the idea of streaming and make it something that's actually meaningful in local music communities. Yeah, I, well, I'm curious. I'm curious. I'm picking your brain about about that. And it's just like, you know, when you think upon because I like this idea and actually I I, uh, I have a funny. Yeah, like when I, when I was in high school, I used to actually go to the library and check out CDs of bands. Like very, yeah, uh, like, yeah, like very, yeah, very, yeah. yeah, very specifically. I remember like hearing the Promise Ring for the first time when I checked out one of the, one of their CDs from the local library. Which I don't know. In mm -hmm. hindsight, is kind of wild because I'm like, you know, who was the cool emo librarian who was like ordering off the Jade Tree Records catalog in Santa Maria, California? <laughs> but I, I couldn't help but think about these library systems also, though, in regards to like where they fit in the streaming music ecosystem and like particularly on like the listener level. And I'm just kind of like curious, like when you think about this, cause I support it as well. And I'm, t I think it's really cool, but I did get to thinking, you know, who, who are these for and like, where do they kind of fit into that music, musical ecosystem? Like, what, what do you think about that? Like when you think about these, 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 uh, these, uh, projects? Yeah. Well, I, I think of the, the idea of like a local music streaming service as being for, like anyone, I mean, anyone who would like go to a public library, which is a lot of people, or also anyone who is interested in the idea of a project that centers, you know, these ideas of like music, like government funding for music, or also um, having a non-commercial tool with which to distribute their music to their fans. Like I was thinking about how for a lot of musicians, you know, like the one in Chapel Hill, they pay artists $200 for the license for five years, which on one hand, some people might say that's not a lot of money, but a point that I brought up on the piece I did for Montez Press Radio that I think is 
true is that if you're the type of musician who maybe is releasing a cassette or interested in releasing a cassette, like $200 could help you chip away at the cost of producing a run of a hundred tapes or something. Um, or if you want to like go into a studio for a day to record a new single or something like that could be put towards something like that. So it's like, it's not, I, I think that it's not like not meaningful um, compensation, but also like the, the digital infrastructure of having a non-commercial space online where you can host your music and a link that you could share it with your um fans or listeners or community is also, I think, meaningful compensation in a sense, because sort of for reasons alluding to earlier, like some artists and musicians might not have like the um, ability to just like go online and like throw up their own website with their own coded dream. So I think that like the digital infrastructure that it provides in a non-commercial setting is really interesting. Yeah, and like I guess there could be a way also in which you could throw that up and 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 as we were saying earlier in the interview, it, it could maybe like work in tandem with, you know, your Bandcamp page or whatever, you know, and like kind of be that way where they can kind of get a sense of what your music's about, but if they actually want to like buy a full album, then maybe you can send them to like either your website like, you know, like we like you suggested, but if they don't have that, then like maybe it could work in tandem with like other platforms. Yeah, totally. I'm also really interested in kind of like the curatorial function that these libraries have. Cause I totally agree with like um, libraries as these like ha have transitioned better to like m the modern digital economy than almost any institution in American life. And that uh, it seems to me that that's one of the, in some ways a really interesting advantage and kind of connects to the idea of uh, like local streaming rather than global streaming and the kind of, um, almost like counterintuitive like coolness of that idea to me, the way that it pushes back against all kinds of assumptions. And, and my sense is that like part of this is, is is the difference between just like these artists throwing up like a track on SoundCloud or whatever versus being hosted by the streaming library is the sense that they have kind of a buy-in and, and a stamp of approval almost and like a position within this local musical community as designated by this very communal space. Yeah, I I also think, you know, it by having the curation be so locally focused, it serves as just sort of another part of the fabric of a local music community in a sense. And from the folks I talked to in North Carolina, it seemed like they were involving the curators they were involving are people who already have a lot of involvement in the music scene. And um, in a sense, like one of the musicians I interviewed said that it almost felt like they were creating kind of like a yearbook of who was involved in the music, various music communities, like at that point in time. Yeah, I really, I really love that point. I thought that was a really great point. Like, and it made me think about how how wonderful that would be, you know, when I was getting into like, you know, punk music and this, and if I also had this sort of like very detailed archive of like who played with who and like when whatever singles came out with whoever, I really like that. Yeah, totally. And so I think I talked to one of the folks from the library about um, the idea of the project um, sort of functioning as like a digital archive for local music. And I thought that that was a really important point too, um, especially, you know, considering how one of the 
issues that comes up with the reliance on private um, companies sort of fueling the digital music ecosystem is how every few years there's like some new platform where people are hosting all of their music and then when it inevitably like closes down or like you know I, I was just thinking about all of like the non-existent myspace pages that probably oh my god like we're never going to be able to write a history of emo like a real honest to god like detailed social history of emo because it's just gone it's heartbreaking yeah totally and I, so many of my own personal like teenage memories of music are like lost you know i've spent so much time trying to track down someone who might be have been involved in this thing called Blurdy, um, which is like a pre-live journal, like live journal thing, because I was, I had so, I used it so much, it doesn't exist anymore. Anyway, um, so I like the idea, not that you would be using the local music streaming service, like a live journal, but you know, I'm just, um, the point I was trying to make is um, when these platforms shut down like they take a lot of musical memories with them and the idea of a publicly funded and managed archive is really exciting in that regard yeah i mean that, that's also just like an issue of technology in general and the internet and i think that like you know on a personal level i have that lesson i wrote probably 30 plus articles for mtv iggy remember that i don't know maybe not but yeah, yeah. i mean yeah and it was like you know i was doing a lot of work like i was going to jamaica a lot and like interviewing people and I remember one time somebody told me who who wrote for Iggy that like an article they had written about protest music in like Southeast Asia like had Im an impact on the election. And then when they decided when Viacom decided to switch over just to like rebrand like MTV.com, like all of that went away. They just deleted it. <laughs> it was just you know, and that, that serves to me as like kind of an early lesson because I think that happened in like 2015 that, you know, and also MySpace, as we mentioned, that these companies have no interest in in archiving or, or you know, any kind of history. I mean, it, their, their main goal is basically just to like make money. Sorry, Sam, I think I interrupted you. Oh, no, I, I was just going to say that like it's also I think the libraries are particularly well suited for that kind of archival thing and that like a lot of libraries already do certain kinds of digital archiving. I mean, um, I mean, there's like the British library, uh, which just takes any recorded sound. Oh yeah, I, <laughs> I love mean, that. Then I like that. puts it in their basement and is like trying to sort through what to do with it. But like, we'll take any recorded sound and be like, we'll do our best to keep this safe until we figure out like how to store it in a better way. Or like the Library of Congress with uh, the huge archive of digitized uh, Edison rolls that they've developed in recent years. Um, so it's like, it's cool because it fits, like it's not grafting on a weird new thing to libraries. I feel like it fits with libraries mission really well. Yeah, I also, I just love like, like weird out there, like all encompassing maximalist archives. <laughs> it's like so great. And the fact that it's like run, I don't know. I, yeah, I love that. I love that. So I was also wondering, um, it struck me as like, I was just thinking about like ways that this could be built out into a broader structure, you know, because it seems like uh, from what I've read of the the ones that exist is they at least so far and a lot of them are fairly new. They tend to have relatively limited catalogs. And I was wondering, I was trying to think about because I, I just love that idea of like local streaming. And I'm wondering how this kind of infrastructure could interface with like the more money-making versions of local music scenes. 
or like the more like with local labels or like with like very local music industries, some of which in like certain towns, like, you know, it's totally possible to have a local label that like kind of keeps on going and makes enough money to cover rent and has local fans that get, you know, that people who buy the records um, in a variety of different music um, and ways where like having that kind of, you know, instead of putting it on like Datpiff or whatever, like you could put your mixtapes on the library <laughs> um, and it provides like a better, cheaper alternative. And and like you're saying, like a much more um, robust one, especially in the long term. Well, I thought that the idea that they were, that at least in the, the one in North Carolina, they were like bringing folks who are already deeply embedded in the local music communities, like into the curation of them um, was a good idea. And I feel like, you know, that's like a, a good place to, to start. Um, I, yeah, I, I guess it, it's hard to say every local music scene is different. And I, I think that those kind of conversations would hopefully be happening like locally amongst the the folks running the music streaming program and people involved in their local music community who were getting involved as musicians being hosted on them or supporters or participating in curation programs. But I definitely I think that it's just an interesting like idea to keep to keep following and keep, you know, checking in with folks who are involved with them and like seeing how it's going and stuff. Um, I also would encourage anyone who's like interested in the idea of library streaming um, to check out Rabble, who's like the company that most of these are like running on their software. And it was like developed by librarians. Um, I believe it's open source. Answer your question. I think you're right. <laughs> like, I think they should be more part of like, you know, the fabric of local music communities. And, and I think that's the exciting part about these tools, right? Like in some ways, like you build, th th like that's the promise of a platform, especially platforms that are, instead of trying to bring in the entire world or, or designed to try to meet the needs of a local community is like, mm. that tool is so hard to build. But then like, once it's there, ideally, like people can use it for all kinds of different stuff. And that, especially if it's done by a local library, it means that tool is going to like be around for a little while instead of being subject to like, yeah. uh, I don't know, venture capital. I mean, honestly, like at this point, I feel like, I feel like expanding people's imagination about like how stuff we do online could be more interesting is important. And to me, even though this might seem like a small thing, I'm sure some people's responses are like this, how could this ever replace music streaming like it's not going to replace music streaming it's just something that is like i think really interesting in the context of local music community and there are some musicians for whom this will be way more exciting than like the idea of a corporate music streaming service myself included <laughs> um and uh i think some people would say like oh but these already exist like you know some of these things have existed for a few years like you know, they haven't taken off. And it's like, well, you know, they're not supposed to quote unquote, take off. Like, we're not thinking about like, how can we scale this? Like, how can we grow this? It's just like, this is something that is a valuable tool that more people should know about. You know what I mean? Well, that's interesting that you say that because the next, the next thing on, on my list of questions, I wanted to actually talk about resonate. And I think that that, you know, mm. does 
kind of to the things you're saying and, and that it really expands our imagination of like the possibilities of like what we can do. I think that, and if you, maybe you can go ahead and just talk a little bit more about that platform, but maybe also just to pile on a second question there to, to riff off of what you just said, it does seem like resonate did have sort of the goal or does have the goal of scalability, which is, which is kind of interesting, but maybe I'm misinterpreting their, their, what they, what they're trying to do. Yeah. You know, I also too thought that, And when I did the interview with one of the folks involved in Resonate for the piece, I actually brought that up and it, you know, the idea like, oh, so like is Resonate, you know, trying to sort of like take the idea of like a mass music streaming platform, but like just take the economic model away and then replace it with the more cooperative one. And the response I was met with was actually kind of like, mass scale like no like this is like to serve the community that uses it sort of thing um so i thought that was like really interesting and yeah interesting because i feel like they got seed funding so it's kind of cool that they were able to get seed funding for something that's really not focused on scalability but maybe i'm wrong but yeah maybe maybe you could just talk talk about like some of the things that you really like about resonate and and how it's as you kind of said earlier kind of expanding our imagination about how what we could do online. Yeah, I, I feel like so I have been interested in Resonate for a few years now. And yeah, when I first was when I first became interested in that project and wrote about it in I think it was 2017. What was really interesting to me, like wasn't this idea of like, oh, this is something that will like clearly like, you know, replace big streaming and like everyone will go use this like worker co-op instead it was kind of the idea that it felt like this space where people could sort of like experiment and like jump in like as a member and like go to meetings and be involved in like the cooperative like democratic decision making process and like kind of um yeah experiment and like expand their idea of like what a music streaming service could be um or music streaming project. And just to cut in, can you can you just go ahead and just just for our, the people listening, just explain exactly uh, what how what Resonate was doing and and like how it was different than say like a Spotify. Yeah, so it's like a cooperatively run music streaming service, and I think sort of like in the earlier days of it, it had this sort of like multi multi point decentralization strategy where they were like using like decentralized like blockchain technology but also it was decentralized and that it was like a cooperative and personally the aspect of it that was always much more exciting to me was the idea that it was run as a cooperative um yeah i don't know i think co-ops are important like you know uh bolstering the general like society-wide movement for a more cooperative worker-owned economy is important so it's always interesting like with music and the tools that we build in music scenes and the spaces that we build in music scenes to kind of like think about like you know not just the music stuff that we want to build but like you know the world that you want to live in and like how music fits into it so in that sense I think like anything that is exploring the idea of worker cooperativism with the music is like pretty interesting um i i just think that like the the idea in general of looking at like these various tools that people have kind of been like or tools or platforms or 
whatever that people have sort of become accustomed to using, like music streaming and thinking about what about, for example, music streaming is like something that some music listeners actually like and how can you take like those aspects of it and take that away from like the exploitative economic model and try to imagine what it would look like with a more fair economic model. So I think that resonate is kind of like an interesting is interesting in that regard, but I'm always interested in like ask whenever this conversation comes up, I always like to ask people like if they actually like music streaming, because personally I don't use music streaming. So it's hard for me to say, because like to me, like music streaming in general is like not something that I I don't I use very very often or like ever so I don't know I would actually be curious like both of your thoughts like if the idea to you of like music streaming with a more economic with a more fair economic model like is something that makes sense to you or is like interesting oh yeah I mean of course it makes sense to me as as just like something that 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 I that I advocate I think that's something that we oftentimes criticize continually and, and 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 kind of also like watch this space i th- i think that you know for me personally i don't want to speak for sam but i think the one thing that i oftentimes take into consideration is like the listening habits and also the fact that i kind of exist mm-hmm. in a very possibly possibly very small bubble as like a you know an avid music listener who will spend like hours reading about like you know how an album was made or whatever (laughs) you know or like searching for music and I kind of think about the like where I and I think that personally like I'm on the you know we're we're rare and I think about like okay what would my mom do I always think about my mom and I've actually brought up my mom a few times you know just like what's her listening habits you know how how do we get her on board with some of this stuff and like maybe we don't you know maybe it's just like you know, all these things are just sort of in tandem. And maybe like what you're saying is that we're, you know, or I, I think what you kind of suggest in this interview and oftentimes in your writing is like, maybe like it's just we're giving more power to some of the smaller people in the music industry and independent labels and like, you know, allowing them to sort of like have more of a say. And then, you know, obviously, hopefully by proxy, you know, or by, you know, collective work or co-op, like they start to earn more more of an income from from you know selling records or whatever it may be streaming but i i, I think that like I, I do think streaming is here to stay yeah i guess i just like really worry about is, is there i guess i what i want to ask is like is there a feasible way kind of play my own devil's advocate because i feel like this comes up in conversation and i feel like it oftentimes i think it, i think it's good that we talk about this but it, like is there a feasible way to sort of go to the other end of our conversation for like a Spotify or a Spotify like platform to remain in the ecosphere and also offer better payout and cataloging, you know, or is, or is like a small army of alternative platforms revolving around the localized independent and genre based sort of like scenes, like the only alternative. I don't know. Yeah. I, I kind of feel like, you know, the Spotify's mm-hmm. are here to stay, but like maybe like this can kind of be in tan- in tandem. I don't know, Sam. What Sam? What do you think? I mean, it's a really interesting question. Um, I, I don't know. I was thinking about when, when you asked that, Liz. I was thinking about like uh, how I listened to music before Spotify, and in a weird way, it actually was kind of streaming. Like I had a two terabyte or a one terabyte hard drive that was filled with like 
but like many, many albums that I had pirated through like local networks in college or like through torrents that were, you know, like 80, like, uh, you know, 80 Krautrock records. <laughs> um, and like, no, that wasn't a particularly like ethical way to listen to music. Um, but it like it kind of what, you know, it was there. And so I wanted to listen to all the music I could. And so in a weird way, like when I first had access to Spotify, I'm like, oh, this is in some ways just like, a more efficient way of listening to the music, a more efficient way of accessing music, but it's really like just a better version of what I was doing already that I had already moved away. A more efficient way of stealing music. Or just a more efficient way of like having a whole bunch of music on a hard drive. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like in fairness, I was also (laughs) supporting my local record stores. This was not about not spending a lot of money buying music. It was about getting even more music than I had money to spend. Oh, yeah. Um, And also, I always say that because I I don't know. It's like Spotify is kind of like stealing music. No, I mean, Spotify is 100% stealing IP. Like they did that. They they lost that lawsuit. (laughs) Like we know that they were stealing it. Yeah, I posted something on Twitter like a few months ago. Maybe it was a year ago. I can't remember time moves so strangely, but it was like stealing music equals stealing music. Spotify equals stealing music, but they get your data and sell it to Smart Water or something like that. You know, like it's, I don't know. One is clearly worse than the other one. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right, right. And I mean, you know, there's an argument to be made also that like TikTok is doing the same thing and actually even worse, you know, <laughs> so. Um, but I mean, but uh, yeah, but I, I do think like kind of going back to your question, I think it's really, really interesting and it's something I've never thought of before in that and this kind of goes back to the idea of platforms, too, right, is like I've tended to think of music streaming as synonymous with the platforms that we stream music on. Mm -hmm. And in some ways, maybe what I feel like you're posing is like, maybe they're two separate questions, right? It's like, there's music streaming and what does music streaming do? And what does that do to music as a commodity? What does that do to music communities? And then also there's the platforms we're streaming music on and how they're impacting what streaming is and like what kind of financial or ethical or communal possibilities that there are and that those have been deeply linked questions but it's useful to disaggregate them absolutely because I I think part of it is like even if you know this came up because um I was thinking you know even if you had a streaming service that had like the most ethical payment structure imaginable and all of the demands that um artists communities are making were met um and there is you know a much more fair system like does the idea of like paying one subscription fee or even if it was like you know free somehow but still better for us um like is the very idea of like streaming as like a model like are there issues with it that are, are outside of that like you know the the idea of not owning the music or like um the illusion of infinite choice the way it shapes how people listen to music like could those be solved by or not even solved but like um would changing the the economic model fix those things like i feel like they're they're big questions but i i agree with what you said in that we tend to think of music streaming 
as like Spotify and Apple Music. And I think that, yeah, taking them apart and thinking about like just the concept of music streaming versus the, um, you know, financial and corporate music industry relationships surrounding uh, the streaming services that are currently dominant is like an interesting um interesting things to think about yeah i mean now so like and also so sorry but like you know just just like you know it's like all the other like problems involved in that you know we like did an episode on like the music ecologies and just like thinking about mm-hmm. also how every time you stream something you know there's a server farm in utah made of like you know rare metals like you mined out of the earth and like how that's like yeah. you know just are that habit in itself is like actually like really damaging to the environment and just yeah it, it, there's so many different aspects to it uh, I think that's a really great point that like, even if we did like create like a fair model, quote unquote, fair mm-hmm. model, you know, like there's another set of issues that would need totally. to be solved. But I, but then again, the guess the question is like, can you, st- can, I mean, can we unwind what we've already done? And like, in, as far as like the idea of on demand streaming, whether it be like a video or music or a TikTok, you know, clip, mm-hmm. like, is that feasible also? You know, can we actually like change the culture and maybe like, this is just, you know, I think something that I think is interesting that I kind of want to mention, but, you know, Matt Dryhurst, who you've interviewed, like, seems to have, like, a sort of, like, okay, we're going to use the technology, but we're going to, like, use it in a way that is, like, more fair to us. But he's kind of, but I think that, like, the war or the battle against our our habits and our streaming habits and our listening habits, I think, has maybe been lost. And, I mean, I would love to hear, like, you know, an argument against that. That's fine. But I, I, I tend to think that sometimes. Yeah, I think you know, ultimately it kind of wraps back around to like what I mentioned at the beginning, which is like music is so broad and music, there's different music communities that have like different goals and scopes and stuff. Like there are some people who are still, some music listeners who are still like super happy to like have their set of um, under like underground record labels that they mail order from a few times a month and that is like their music library is like the cassettes and seven inches that arrive and that's honestly like a lot of my own music listening um but but you know so it's it's hard to it's hard to like you know make generalizations about like how music habits have changed because there are like so many different definitely like you know ways to define music listening habits if that makes sense yeah i mean and i think a lot of us are like you know i mean i think the numbers in themselves obviously like speak to something but like i think also a lot of us are probably doing a lot of different things at once and Mm -hmm. you know there's i mean you're i i would think that maybe you do so you do no no streaming at all i well i i i'm not trying i'm not trying to put you on the spot i'm just curious no i'm happy to talk about it so i have a i have a spotify account that i use like when i'm like writing articles and um you know, if there's something that like absolutely cannot be found anywhere, but that's like normally not the case. I feel like it's usually more so the case that like something will be on Bandcamp and not on like bigger streaming services. But yeah, yeah, same, same. Yeah, but I, I do, I, I buy, buy on Bandcamp. I spent a lot of the past year rebuilding my MP3 library, which is fun and exciting. Um, and yeah, cassettes vinyl records once in a while but honestly not too many 
Um, yeah, that's nice. Yeah, that's cool. But I think I think yeah. it speaks, you know, even that, even your, your very minimal streaming kind of speaks to the fact that I think probably, you know, your your earlier point, which is that it's hard to generalize because yeah. people listen in multitude of different ways now. You oh, know, sure. You, I, I listen yeah. to the radio a lot too. Shout out to the radio. Yeah, hell yeah. Hell yeah. Yeah, definitely. I, I agree with that. I, I, I mean, the, the thing though, I wonder about also with a lot of this, and I think that I think about TikTok a lot um in this regard in that as like the ways in which streaming hasn't just changed the way we consume like a thing called music but the ways in which like the broader proliferation of digital musical economies have changed what music is and the way that there's sort of kind of like historically specific visions of music that emerged out of specific musical technologies and how those are also changing And, and just in that like if you look at like hit songs like you know the, the top billboard 100 or whatever like a lot of them are have a really like integral relationship with something like tiktok and the ways in which like music partially because streaming allows it to be combined like the digitization of music has allowed it to be combined with so many different things in so many more flexible ways like the way that something like tiktok is a way that people are listening to music, but is it the same music that like when I go and listen to a vinyl record because it's connected to visuals, it's connected to this like broader social network um, where part of the value is in the sounds and part of the value is in like the comments and the meme that it's connected to and the conversation around it. And in some ways that's always been true of music, right? But it's interesting because I feel like in some ways it's almost like changed register. Yeah. it's almost like a parallel media world that involves music, but I don't know, almost as sort of its own thing. Does that make sense? I, I totally agree. I, I don't know, though, though, to me, it's also like, again, like I, I work on um, like the music industry uh, for like for my research in like the late 19th, early 20th century, like before sound recording, you know? So a lot of the ways that songs were distributed was through vaudeville. And so in some ways, like, it's this weird thing where I like go to 19th century newspapers and then I go to TikTok and I'm like, it's the same thing <laughs> because it's like the song, a song in 1905 only exists in, in its performance and usually like its performance, like as a skit or in a specific place. And that's how it gains its popularity, right? Yeah, yeah. And that's how it gains its popularity. And in some ways, like TikTok is almost the same thing again, like question mark. That's so interesting. I guess I guess you talked to a guy who was like trying to kind of create this government run music streaming service. And I think the part of that that I found like most interesting was like about his like desire for like a different kind of like royalty, I believe. And yeah, and I did I I'm I'm just kind of curious like maybe if you can kind of like just uh comment on that a little bit before we like wrap up here and just like some of your thoughts yeah, on that. Yeah, totally. So, it's cool to end on. I actually have a print piece on this topic forthcoming that I hoped would be published before this conversation, but it is not. Um, but it's the way of all print. <laughs> can, can you can you tell us like where where we could expect to find it, or is that under wraps? No, well? yeah, it's going to be in um, real life. It's not. Um, yes, yeah, so not print online, but sorry, text piece um, like online. Cool. Written the written word. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah so. Um, 
the American Music Library is the project that you're alluding to. And this is like a proposal that um, uh, Henderson Cole, who is a um, lawyer, but is also the editor and publisher of this music blog called The Alternative. And he has been working on this proposal for a government-funded, taxpayer-funded streaming service called the American Music Library. That um, So David wrote about it a couple of years ago and published the um, working proposal. So if you Googled like Penny Fractions American Music Library, you can find it. And yeah, I think that that's like a super interesting um, addition to this conversation about like reconceptualizing how music especially like digital music access is, is valued. Um, and he, in his proposal, tied the idea of like a taxpayer funded music streaming service to like creating a unique royalty for it. That would be specific to just this street, like um, government run streaming service um, that operates like outside of the um, other pre-existing royalty system, um, almost sort of creating like a, new form of arts funding in a sense, um, specifically for artists whose music is um, on this service. So yeah, I definitely recommend checking that out if if that type of idea is interesting to you. I think it's I think it's interesting. So w- in particular, like what what about it like really pops out at you? I mean there's because it's, it's it's a I definitely recommend anyone check out check it out because it's like a it's like a modest proposal. It's like a really super interesting way to think about like you know swing for the fences way to think about like what a maximalist vision of total reform of the music industry could look like it feels to me yeah yeah totally i mean i feel like it kind of fits into like a bigger conversation which is like um reforming um arts funding and not even like reforming just like having music funding full full stop (laughs) yeah yeah totally so it would be great if we had um more arts funding in the the u.s and if we had more funding for music and musicians especially at a time where musicians and artists um are out of particularly out of work i mean things weren't very good before the past year also, but um, without touring on the table, there's like a pretty bad need for funding for arts and music and culture. Um, so yeah, I just I just feel like the idea of a of a proposal that simultaneously like works as a form of arts funding, but also is involved in the conversation about like imagine reimagining music streaming. And, and so the idea would be that the government basically offers a almost like, you know, like like uh, like government Spotify, like it allows fully taxpayer funded. So it's free, mu- gives musicians this new royalty through streams on it. And it would almost just bypass the 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 entire distribution system of music as it currently exists is kind of the idea. And it, with the idea that like this is pennies, drops in the bucket, given how much financial power the government has. Totally. I think Henderson even has something in there. Um, He does have something in there that said, like, you know, we could even make it a rule of the platform that a label can't stop an artist from putting their music on it. And I thought that that was like an interesting addition to um, just being like, 
you know, think of the, it, it has, it, it opens up a lot of possibilities, I think. And, and I mean, it, it is one of the things I think that like, at, at one level, like it, it's, you know, it, it's really, like I said, like a, like a, um, a maximalist vision. But at the other, I do feel like this is this moment where like, um, I'm like, I'm really encouraged by the, the save our stages bill that got passed, which like, I think has a lot of problems. Uh, most of which is that it's directed towards venues and not artists. And it's like, that's only half of the picture, obviously. But I was encouraged by the idea that it was the, the passage of that bill was based on kind of a, a widespread acknowledgement both that the arts are important and that they're actually like a financial anchor for cities and communities across the country, that they're really important. And that just because the system has been incredibly unequal and it doesn't, money doesn't get back to most of the people involved in it. At the same time, like they really help large parts of like, especially the urban economy keep going. And that somehow that acknowledgement as lopsided as it is, I found, uh, useful because it's like well if that's important then like maybe i don't know arts funding in schools <laughs> would also be important or like keeping musicians going and that in some ways it's it's a you could do a kind of of of, of end run around some of the really exploitative problems um in this industry with the government that that's a, a potential possibility especially in this kind of like low inflation rate, $1.9 trillion bill type situation that it seems like we're in right now. Yeah, it's it's always interesting to me how funding for the arts or conversations about music's role in culture always seems to focus on how what a big part of the economy music is and music creates this many jobs it brings in this much money economically every year like this is why you should fund it and i do also think there's like a lot to be done to kind of like expand past there and think about the role that music plays in the way music is integral to culture beyond just the economic impact of it um as you know something more than that um but yeah, like bring a community and like brings people together and and like you know yeah. entertainment and escape and like all that. I mean, we did a whole thing on like you know uh, the the uh, WPA and and some of the things that um, Roosevelt did. And I mean, a lot of, like it was you know it was stated in in his efforts. It was like you know we're gonna have small orchestras go around these towns. Like and part of it was to like build up the morale. You know that that was actually like part of the goal. Yeah, yeah, totally. Like you know, music is part of like building community and giving people an outlet and like um, a lot of these like broader things that are completely like not tied to like whether or not um, the music is being purchased by X number of people. But I think it's a tricky problem, like given the fact that this is how so much of especially kind of like the large scale decisions are made in our society. I kind of feel like mm -hmm. it's a dangerous slope, but I almost feel like it's a, it's a weapon you can't give up on and that you both have to say like music is important because it's the most valuable thing in the entire world it's like memories and like the first time you fell in love with your partner and like the, your grandma singing to you and like that time on the dance floor when like uh we found love in a hopeless place dropped but also <laughs> 
<laughs> but also it's like it produces X number of dollars for the, you know, economy of Topeka. And that's why we need the Blues Club. And like, <laughs> but yeah. like how you balance those without like turning it into another number. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I think it's an open question. I think it's really tricky. Or like without turning it into a thing then where like the musicians that are receiving government support like have to prove their ability their commercial viability and it's like ultimately i feel like something that could be really powerful about um public funding for art is the ability to like have a source of support that is able to sort of like defy market logic and like support musicians that wouldn't be getting financial support elsewhere yeah totally and, and uh, can, can we like can we like pork roll into like this like uh relief bill like uh you know, money to support like the glove or something. (laughs) (laughs) One of the things I feel like that the kinds of tracking it could potentially offer and allow is like, it's also that like, we don't know what, like how music actually functions, right? It's like, there's this weird industry streaming as you've described so many times is a very weird industry that says like we like the money that is made from music happens like here here and here and that's how we've structured an entire system around like who makes the most money in like concert sales and not like all the different kinds of interactions that music does and people in all kinds of people's everyday life and like so we don't know how like community music works in some ways or rather like maybe we know how it works but we don't know the extent of it like the like the full like scale you know full extent and like you're saying that maybe like blockchain could like reveal uh blockchain could maybe like reveal some of that or just like thinking about how like the social like what the value of all the social interactions that like has is because like the, the thing is that like you know, Spotify is making money off those interactions right now and Google's making money off those interactions right now. And so is like TikTok and Twitter and Facebook and like that, that money should go elsewhere <laughs> and like the government should maybe have a part in it. I don't know. Yeah, no, I, I yeah, I totally, I totally agree with that for sure. For sure. Um, Liz, we've had you a long time. Thank you very much for talking to us. Uh, is Do you want to go ahead and maybe like direct listeners on where they can like read your work and uh, and, and, and find you on social media? Yeah. Um, so my email address is lizpelly at gmail.com. And if people have um, any like questions or thoughts or ideas, like I could always be reached directly by email and if you want to read some of the old articles that I've written, like older articles from the past few years, you can go to um, lizpelly.com slash writing, or you could follow me on the, the internet at, at lizpelly. I also have a sometime in the next month, probably the first week of March, I'm uh, launching a newsletter with my sister called Cryptophasia that you can subscribe to. Oh, can you tell us a little bit about what that's going to be yeah. about? Yeah, totally. So I, it's finally at the point we've been working on it for um, almost two years. And it's finally at the point where I can talk about it um, because we are finally like finished. Um, we've been working with a friend who's been like building out um, this tool for us to use to sell subscriptions that doesn't involve like gathering data it's like just like a email subscription to payment processor tool um and it's going to be 
reviews of music. Um, so, <laughs> uh, yeah, if you like music and reading about it, uh, definitely, yeah, check it out. Thank you.